May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Uh, during last week, Archbishop Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, preached at or spoke. I don't know if it was a sermon or a talk. Anyway, he spoke at St Martin's on the Fields in Trafalgar Square, where he said, and this has been reported, that uh, God is neither male nor female, and that all language we use for God is uh, metaphorical and is always limited. And this has made it into the newspapers, because this seemed quite a revolutionary idea that God was neither male nor female. And so I read a comment, uh, commentary about that in The Guardian uh, yesterday before I went off cycling. And um, it was quite an interesting commentary. It was talking about, well, this is just pretty standard Anglican theology, but there'll be a lot of people who will be surprised by those comments. Because our standard image of God is... Uh, an older white man. And he said, well, where does that image come from? Well, it comes, he said, from those who are in power, who are generally older white men. They have created God in their image. And so that is the image that we have, and that then allows them to do all kinds of things. And it made me think about the two themes that run through this last Sunday of the year. The first is Aotearoa Sunday, and the second is Christ the King Sunday. So Aotearoa Sunday is a Sunday set aside by General Synod in the 1980s uh, to celebrate Te Pio Patanga o Aotearoa. The story of Te Pio Patanga is it's an astounding story and it's an incredibly sad story. But I think it's a story that in some ways is, uh, can be understood in terms of people in power who created the image of God and the image of what a proper churchman should look like in their own image. And that image was an Englishman. And so when they came here, uh, it took a long time before the first Māori was ordained deacon and then... Uh, and then Preston, and his name was Rota Waitoa, in the early 1850s, uh, he was deaconed, and it took him about eight years of further study before he was accepted to be priested here in the Waiapu Diocese. Uh, so we had the first Māori priest, and he worked at Te Araroa, although it wasn't called that then, it had its proper name in those days. Um, Te Araroa was uh, given to it by the post office because it was a long way to go. And that's what Te Araroa means. Um, and uh, so he had a very interesting ministry there because he wasn't Ngāti Pūrō or Te Whānau Apunui. So uh, he came across a lot of intertribal politics while he was there. Now, 1860s is also the time of the land wars, as we remembered on Thursday night at Cliff and Buddy's book launch. And that had a devastating effect on the Anglican Church. A lot of Māori in this area, in the Waikato, who had been Anglican, who uh, uh, went to Anglican churches, stopped. They were not going to be part of a church that was so clearly aligned with the colonial government. And around that time, a call went up for there to be a Māori bishop so that Māori could organise the church and not be under the under the authority of these Englishmen. Uh, well, 
for those who were in charge, which was Englishmen, and it was the men, uh, well, that wasn't... I mean, bishops were English men. They weren't Māori. So that didn't happen for a long time. In the 19... Uh, well, this year, in, uh, well, earlier this month, actually, uh, we commemorated uh, the Ratna Church, commemorated the first visions of um, Ratna, down at Ratna, a uh, hundred years ago. And that gave birth to the Ratna Church, so they kind of celebrated the birth of their church. Now, that's a very important part of our story and the story of Te Pilpatunga, because so many Anglican Māori, including leaders in the Māori Anglican Church, then went, look, we've had enough. We have waited a long time for a church that uh, operated within our tikanga, operated within our language, our reo. Uh, it's not going to happen. These Englishmen keep telling us that uh, everything's fine. It's not fine. So they went and joined the Māori church, the Ratna church. And so that forced General Synod in the 1820s to take those calls seriously and eventually to agree to the formation of the Pilkatanga o Aotearoa. So there were great celebrations until it was realised by some of those uh, that some of those Englishmen that the first Māori bishop was actually going to be a Māori. At which point a whole lot of limits were put around it and he became a suffragan bishop in the Diocese of Waipu. And so his seat was down in Waipu Cathedral. And that bishop needed the Bishop of Aotearoa needed to have permission from many other bishops to go into their diocese and for a very long time was forbidden to ever step foot in the Diocese of Auckland. Um, was not allowed to do anything there and if they wanted the Māori bishop to confirm Māori Anglicans, they had to bust them out into the Waikato and they'd get a church there and then they'd bust them back. It's an interesting, so this is the first Māori bishop, Frederick Bennett, um, astounding man. Uh, he's buried at St Faith's under the altar. And it's an interesting story because it's a story in part about us creating images of God in our image and God was white and male and English, let's face it. And, uh, and there was lots of controversy in St Faith's when they had the Māori bishop, uh, Māori uh, uh, Christ on the stained glass window, although some would say it just looks like... But he's white, isn't he? Well, he's not. Jesus wasn't white, didn't have blue eyes, didn't have blonde hair, none of that stuff. We don't have a problem with that. Uh, and it's also a story which is at one point astounding, like 1920s New Zealand Anglican Church appointed a Māori bishop. Like we were a reasonably racist country and white people ruled and Māori had to have know their place, which was the Māori seats, they were to make sure Māori had a place in Parliament, but a small place, a quiet place. They could do it like they had those four seats. Shush, be quiet, don't claim it for any more. Uh, so Māori were very hemmed in in our society, if we're honest about it. Like we keep thinking it was beautiful, but it wasn't beautiful. Uh, and in this society, the Anglican Church voted for and appointed a Māori bishop. So it's an astoundingly prophetic move, and, but it's also an astoundingly sad move, because it, it could have been so much more. 
and we just couldn't grasp that so much more. And all of that leads me to the second theme of the week, which is Christ the King. And that kind of is at play in Christ the King as well. It, we could be so much more than we are, but we keep falling back. We are at times prophetic, but we don't quite make it. Now I have to say, we can have the next picture up, that um, I really struggle with Christ the King Sunday. In part because too often we have created Christ the King in the image of our own kings. So here we have Christ the King, who looks a lot like a Roman emperor, if we look at that. And too often we have understood Christ the King in terms of exactly how the biggest and the best and the most powerful empires on our earth operate. And we have transferred that onto Christ the King and then transferred that back onto our own empires to give them legitimacy. If you don't believe me, just look at the history of the British Empire. That's exactly what they have done. If you don't believe me, have a look at what's happening in America at the moment with Trump. That's exactly what those conservative Christians are doing. They're taking images of how they think government should work, transferring that, that onto God and then putting it back and giving Trump legitimacy. He is God's agent in their country at the moment. Last week we had the story of the disciple being amazed by the temple, particularly the large stones and its grandeur. And as I said, the temple was a kind of ambivalent symbol for a lot of poor Jews, which was most Jews. On the one hand, it was a symbol of God's power, God's presence, God's, uh, that God was in control, that God was winning. But on the other hand, because of the actions of the chief priests, it had also become a symbol of the collusion between the Jewish leadership and Rome. And it was a symbol of the corruption of that leadership, who had made themselves wealthy by, by basically robbing so many people of their land um, and, uh, and amassing that land for themselves. And so it was at once a, a wonderful symbol and, and at the same time a hated symbol. The first people to die in the revolt of 66 were the chief priests. And this one disciple is amazed by its grandeur and its, and its beauty. This temple that had been greatly expanded and beautified by Herod the Great. Uh, we still call it Herod's Temple. The temple goes back, it was 500 years old, but Herod had beautified it. And Jesus gives a warning that this temple will fall, these large stones and everything it represents will tumble to the ground, the grandeur, the power, the magnificence. But I think too often we are like that disciple. We get dazzled by the powerful, we get dazzled by the magnificent, and we think that is God's way. We do not heed the warning that Jesus gave to that disciple and to us. And so there's some more pictures here of how Christ the King is represented. This is Christ the Tsar. It's a Russian icon. And then this one uh, is much more what we would think about Christ the King with the crown of thorns as his crown. And I think there's one more. So we'll just leave it at that one. So what is Christ the King really? We are given our reading this morning from John's Gospel, which is kind of helpful and kind of not all at the same time. 
Um, so it uh, comes from uh, it's the middle one of the middle pieces of the um, of uh, Pilate's interrogation of Jesus. Um, it's not a trial as we would understand a trial. Pilate's not trying to ascertain Jesus' guilt. Guilt is assumed in this scene. Um, Pilate's just trying to work out what he's guilty of um, so that uh, when he's crucified, he's crucified for the right crime. So that's all that, from Pilate's point of view. Uh, and so they have this conversation about what is, um, what is Christ's kingdom? How is he a king? And Jesus eventually answers Pilate's question. He initially answers him with a question which is incredibly confrontational. And then he um, answers him, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. That statement, my kingdom is not from here, is a very problematic statement. It has led Christians down the last 2,000 years to first of all think that Christ has nothing to do with this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, even though Jesus repeatedly said it was. And, uh, and it's all about when we die, we go to heaven. That's the point, the future, going to heaven. What happens in this world is unimportant. Somebody once told me that. John, you don't have to worry about what's happening in this world. It's unimportant. It's about getting into heaven that is important. So the fact that people are hungry, the fact that people die in famines, that there are wars, that there's poverty, that we have climate change, that there's corruption and injustice, none of that is important because that's not Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's heaven. We as Christians should be focused on getting into heaven, on what happens into heaven. We shouldn't worry about those kinds of things. And I have to say that does not match with what I read in the Gospels. So I really struggle with that kind of understanding of Christ the King. And the other thing that people say is, well, it means that he's a spiritual king. I don't even know what that means, really. I can't understand how we can pull spiritual and physical apart. What does it mean to be spiritual? And like, is that not of this world? But what does that mean? Is it just about our attitudes and our morals? And again, do we not have to worry about the poverty and the injustice and the things like that? Because Jesus did worry about those things. And those were the people he spent most of the time with. So what is, it, what is it that Christ the King is about? What does he look like as Christ the King? What does his kingdom look like? Where is it? When is it? These are important questions we have to think about as we think about Christ the King. In the message, Eugene Peterson translated, uh, paraphrased this passage as, My kingdom, said Jesus, doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But I am not that kind of king. Not the world's kind of king. That kind of gets at what I think Jesus was saying here. And certainly the commentators I read thought was going on here. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, he wasn't like any other king that people had encountered up to that point. He certainly wasn't the kind of king that Pilate was used to. 
the Emperor of Rome. He was a different kind of king. And because he was a different kind of king, his disciples would not fight for him. Actually, some of the Gospels said they tried to fight for him and he told them not to. Because they still really were hooked up with that same kind of king that everyone else thought he should be. But his whole ministry had been trying to show a different way of being king. An entirely different way. And while Jesus' kingdom didn't consist of of what Pilate might see around him, which was powerful armies stationed, this is supposed to have happened at the Antonio, which is uh, the Roman fortress in Jerusalem right next to the temple. So it was a It was where the heart of Roman occupation was held. This is where that trial was held. It wasn't about armies, it wasn't about conquest, it wasn't about power, it wasn't about wealth, it wasn't about grandeur. It was found in those little moments like when Jesus washed his disciples' feet or when he ate and drank with entirely the wrong people, therefore honouring and blessing those people. Luke's gospel, that's what gets him into trouble. It's the times that he actually tells people to lay down their weapons and ultimately is found when he's on the cross. That's what Jesus' kingdom, that's when Christ is king. So, that's what I think, but what, I wonder, do you think? Who is Christ the King for you? What does Christ's kingship look like for you? Where do we live in the reign of Christ? And the Sunday is also Stir Up Sunday, like this is the most named Sunday of the year, which apparently, I read on the internet, so it must be true, has something to do with This was the Sunday you had to make sure you stirred up your Christmas cake so it was ready for Christmas Day. But it became, you know, stirring people up. So how is God stirring us up so that we might get on with the work of the kingdom? However we understand that. So let's not do a creed again. I'm going to invite you to talk to your neighbours about what does Christ the King mean for you? And where you see Christ's kingdom in the world at the moment and how we might be stirred up to be part of that kingdom. So have a conversation about those kinds of things.